You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneurship Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. My name is Eric Morris, and I will be your host for this episode. For the past decade, Scott Butler has been the founder and CEO of High Street Ventures, Inc., a real estate developer in one of the hottest markets in Canada. Here's Scott retracing his entrepreneurial journey. Well, we started doing real estate development when I left WestJet. My wife and I decided to uh, start our own business. And that was at the end of 2004, and um, just so happened that one of the co-founders of WestJet, Don Bell, told me when I was leaving that he would back whatever we started. So uh, that gave us the confidence to go out there and, and find something. Didn't know we were going to do real estate at the time, but uh, that ended up being uh, the top of the list. We had about 10 things that we were thinking about doing, and, and uh, real estate development came out on top. So kind of came by it naturally, I guess. My dad had a construction company when I was growing up, and my uh, my brother was doing uh, construction for uh, other developers, so it seemed like a natural fit to play the developer role and and go out and uh, start doing real estate development. So it wasn't, I mean, it was familiar to you. You, you kind of had a sense of what it was all about. You thought you could take that on, but your business model was a little different. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, oddly, it wasn't that different in the beginning. Um, I, we didn't have the plan that we then embarked on later. I think the uh, in the early days, it was just a matter of uh, survival and, and trying to find opportunities, and, you know, making a making a business for yourself. I didn't have any employees at the time. It was just get out there and, and try to get a project going. And, and our first one was a condo project in uh, Courtney. I suppose even at that time, we had the idea around doing repeat buildings. Uh, so we knew that that was a primary concept that we wanted to apply, which was, I suppose, similar to the WestJet philosophy of the same aircraft type and the efficiencies you get out of that. So we knew that if we repeated the same buildings, it would become more efficient and we'd get better at it. Even on our first site, we had three buildings and they were all identical. So um, that was a, certainly an early mandate. And then uh, it wasn't until the downturn in, in 2008 that we really got onto the current model. And that was, um, and again, kind of happenstance. It wasn't, there, was, there, was, there wasn't a big master plan. It was just, again, we were survival. It was how do you, how do you turn? We had some early success on the first project and then built a hotel and had to sell that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were the only hotel sale in BC and, <laughs> and uh, in 2009, so we were the only hotel sale, and um, times were a little difficult. And it was really a combination of my brother had done a lot of construction for rental apartment developers, and we always I was always interested in that model, and I always liked it, but couldn't figure out how the numbers worked until uh, we did the hotel, and there was a big epiphany when when we did the pro formas on the hotel and then looked at takeout financing on the hotel. And of course you build with financing based on cost and your takeouts based on value. And all of a sudden we realized you could take out a bunch of equity that you'd put in initially. You could take it out once the building's full and cash flowing. And then the numbers made sense. Then the numbers could actually get you double digit returns to the point where it made sense to actually split uh, the difference, you know, it's actually split so that as as people that were running the development, we could get a margin out of that and still have enough left over for the investors. And it was really the hotel that led to that epiphany. And then it was, oh, hey, we can do this with rental apartments. 
and then uh, started going gangbusters on rental apartments. And so uh, once you started in rent- rental apartments, the rest of it was, uh, like you said, you had the epiphany, but the rest of it was more kind of gradual learning. Hey, if we do the same structure repeatedly, we're going to get better at it. We're going to lower prices. You know, tell me a little bit more. Uh, how, how did the business model evolve? Yeah, for sure. It was in the beginning. It was literally um, looking at what other developers were doing and and uh, saying, well, there's a there's a model that we could follow, um, you know, two bedrooms uh, predominantly. And they're all two bed, one bath at the time uh, for rental and, uh, you know, pretty basic building. We called it uh, version 1.0. We had uh, we actually uh, went into markets like Yellowknife. I thought we were going to do rental and sold them as condos. And um, that was an eye opener as well. Just the ability to pivot to condo if there was an opportunity, but not focus on condo. So we've we've still done a fair amount of condo in our past, but um, not we don't go into markets thinking we're going to do condo. It's well, very your, rare. Your value proposition is interesting though, because it's uh, apartments is what you go after, but it's it's a nice. It's almost condo level. Uh, oh yeah, right? it's evolved over the years for sure. I mean, we're now we're we can easily transition between rental and condo if the market dictates. So it's yeah, we're you know it's two bed, two bath, quartz countertops, stainless steel appliances, all around. You couldn't tell the difference between what we build and a condo, other than our it's actually more energy efficient. But uh, right, uh, and that's evolved as well, right? In terms of part of the business model, the value proposition uh, for people coming into these apartments. It's yeah. one, it's high, high end. And two, it's, uh, you know, really energy efficient. Uh, you guys just recently won a number of awards. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, part of it, uh, I suppose the, we've got a goal to have a thousand net zero homes uh, that we own and operate by the end of 2024. And um, that probably came more from philosophy but we also recognize that there's a there's a payback there um, when you're building and selling the cash flow really dictates the value so if you can reduce the expense side and increase the cash flow a lot of these uh, energy efficiency improvements pay for themselves and and more so for us it was it was about math and we're, we are willing to spend beyond pure math on making it more efficient though and uh, and help you know, push the industry in, in what we think is a logical and and correct uh, direction, both from a financial standpoint and for doing what's right. But I'd say in the early days there wasn't there wasn't as much push on that. Certainly, the hotel we built had a lot of uh, energy efficiency built in and and uh, water savings and everything else. But um, it did take a while to come back to that. I think once we really figured out where we were with the product. Um, it gave it, and then the kind of independence of thought through uh, changes in in our structure and our partnership uh, structure. It was really about what do we want to be known for, and how are we going to, um, you know, what change are we going to make in the industry? And that really led to to the net zero vision. In terms of the product itself, a lot of that was response from the market pushing where we where to go in the beginning. And you know, when we first started doing this in two thousand nine. There wasn't a lot of competition, and so no matter what you built uh, in Alberta, it would fill up, and you'd be competing against much older product that was built in the 70s or 80s, and uh, there wasn't a lot of new. And then as that changed over the years, uh, you'd have a lot of condo builders that entered the market in their rental space, and uh, and that created an an uptick in... um, 
in the level. Uh, we also got the feedback from institutional buyers that I remember specifically we had in the downturn in Alberta, uh, one of our projects that we did there, we wanted to sell it. And it was after the downturn, so after post, uh, I guess it was early 2015, and we had what we thought at the time were great layouts. Um, we had, you know, two bedroom, uh, one bath, uh, dining room, quartz countertops, stainless steel appliances. So we pushed kind of everything else in that direction. The underground parking, everything else. And we, we fully underground. We, we, I think about three or four years ago, we just started doing everything with underground parking. So we thought it was a, it was a really good product. And the institutional buyers balked because they said they wanted uh, two bed, two bath and nine foot ceilings. And we had eight foot ceilings. And so you, in, an, in a time of, of, you know, having to sell, the institutional buyers had other product to choose from that had, had what they were looking for. And so we were last on the list when it came to selling. We ended up selling to a private uh, company, not an institutional buyer. And, and the price suffered for right. sure as a sure. result. So. So you kind of some of these changes get forced on you through you know you get beat on the head with, with uh, okay that's what the market demands now, <laughs> whereas you know it's not always brilliance where you just you realize it when you when you're in a bit of a crisis that oh crap that's not what we should be doing anymore and so you just make the change without even fin- not the financial consideration because you couldn't financially it was harder to justify a second bathroom and nine foot ceilings but when the difference between selling a project and not selling a project is second bathroom and nine foot ceilings. Nine foot ceilings. You, you put in the nine foot ceilings in the right. second bathroom. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I think I'd see, I see that in a lot of uh, successful businesses is there's a, a sense of, of planning of, you know, we see this as the right way to go, but there's also a sense of you got to react to the market and those that are successful can do both. Right. And I think you, you've done a great job of that. You know, one of the things that's interesting, Scott, about, uh, about your business is that, uh, you can kind of take either direction with a business model. You can either build this out and then sell it to an institutional investor, or you can take it in-house and operate. You know, why both models? What led to that thinking, and is one better than the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that. I don't know that one's better than the other. Um, I don't think that there is a. Either works, and yeah, there's certain. Uh, I'd say the model of building and selling repeatedly is simpler model of building and operating is more complicated and and then requires additional typically would require additional equity requirement if you're going to hold and especially if you're going to hold everything we're, we we're, we've evolved into a mixed model i'd say for the first few years we were selling because we kept uh, the project size kept growing and as a consequence we we would uh, require more equity so you'd kind of build it and um, sell, get the equity and the profits out to do the next couple of projects. And uh, we continued doing that for a while. And it seemed like for a while we were purposefully trying to stay at three or four projects a year, but we still needed more and more equity because of the project size grew. So, right. we, you know, when, right. when it was eight years ago, our project size would have been, we did 96 apartments in St. Albert and we did 112 in Sunset Valley. Um, and then, you know, our latest projects were, you know, 240 in West Kelowna and 280 in Kelowna and, and 288 in Calgary. So the projects got bigger. So right, the equity right. requirement would triple. So you kind of, 
you know, by virtue of that, we grew. And uh, it only was recently when we kind of we've reached the size, in terms of size and development, we've got our, our sweet spot of 150 to 200 or so apartments and doing four a year. And now we're starting to keep about half because of the, we can just roll that, the remaining uh, half projects with the sale and profits, we can roll into new projects and keep our volume going without having to raise any more money. So that's really the, you know, a bunch of things came together. It was that, the formation of our private mutual fund trust to hold all of the new development stuff in. Then we created an entity to hold them in, which was a separate master limited partnership. And so now we have an entity to, to properly hold them in outside of the trust. Yeah, the whole thing has just really yeah. come together in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, very cool. Two questions left, Scott. The uh, first one is I, I love what you've done in terms of uh, the net zero uh, building and your philosophy on that. And you also have a philosophy in terms of bringing as many people along with you as you can. You've got, uh, you know, all your employees have the opportunity to buy in. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. It, we, um, I guess my wife and I were the, we were the beneficiaries of the, profit sharing and share purchase program at WestJet. And that was always, uh, you know, I think it was a, it was a mantra that uh, they would repeat at WestJet all the time is that, you know, people wanted to benefit from their own success. There'd be a celebration of success and, and people would be able to participate in that as owners. And I think that's a big part of culture. It's not the only part of culture. It's, uh, you know, Don and I have talked about this a lot and, and certainly, you know, are the financial rewards, even if you say it's half and half, well, a half, half of your interest in, in wanting to act like an owner and be like an owner is, is your financial interest. That's great. The other half is obviously the, the culture and, and your manager and how well you get treated, empowerment and everything else. But we always wanted to have people who, if we were successful, they would be successful and successful beyond what they could have made elsewhere. If we're doing really well, we want to share in that. And I think that really uh, High Street started because of the share purchase plan at WestJet. It allowed Melissa and I to save 100000 in five years on not very high salaries. And uh, we went around, we, we turned that 100000 into 500000 on our first development. So it was that ability to, to save uh, that much money in a short amount of time. And I really saw that as something that I was passionate about in helping people do. Not that everybody's going to go and save money and start a company, but just help them with their own financial security, their own financial freedom. And hey, if we're all making money, let's all, let's share it and make money together. And, and you know, we've, so we've had a huge emphasis on trying to get our uh, employees to invest significantly. So we actually do, um, we contribute 50% of up to 20% of their base salary in their investment. Wow. So, yeah. So if you think about, you know, if you're, you're, um, if you make 50,000 a year and you contribute uh, 10, we'll, we'll put in five for you. And, right. and that's out of our own pockets and not, not out of the project money. It's, it's from Melissa and I, uh, from high street ventures. So we actually contribute directly to helping people save. And uh, the idea is that they then participate as owners and they get to benefit as owners. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, the better you do, the better they do. Yeah, right. absolutely. And then the third part we have is the profit sharing. So we've really, you know, it's base salary, the ownership and the profit sharing or bonus, uh, which is again, based on performance. So if we do well as a, as a company, 
um, the bonus has been anywhere from 10 to uh, 18% uh, since we started, 10 to 18% of salary. Wow. So we, uh, and obviously the logical thing we do is when we pay out the bonus, we ask them to invest and, yeah. and then they can get 50% <laughs> more than that. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it creates a, hopefully, I, I mean, I'd love for, for people to, you know, if they've worked at, at uh, High Street, uh, for 10 years, I always, you can do the math. If they work at high street for 10 years and save 20% a year and, and we put in the the 50% of that. And if they're diligent about that and leave it in, uh, and I always look at the numbers and go, well, in 10 years, they'll be making as much off of that as they are working there. So right. it better be a good place to work. Right. <laughs> so that's always the, the logic, but I love that idea. I love that idea that people can, can save and do well and have that option. Right, have that option to not work. If that's the salary you need, then have that option and 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 do well because there's no reason we can't share it. That's fantastic, Scott. Thanks. So, if there was any last thoughts you wanted to leave, uh, you know, the listeners in terms of tips, lessons learned, you know, would there be one or something jump out at you or a couple of things? Yeah, I mean, some of the biggest lessons for me that I, I tell um, entrepreneurs starting out that. Um, really be clear about what you want. I think Don, Don was a fantastic mentor and I just wasn't the best listener in the, in the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, and I should have learned the lesson at WestJet too. It was, there was a big emphasis on, on values. And I didn't really get that. Um, I, I guess, uh, wasn't paying close enough attention, but I think it's really important to know what you want in business and what, what that means. And by saying that, I mean, clearly articulate your values and, and how you want the company to be seen and how you want your people to conduct themselves and how, you know, how you want to be seen is a, is part of values and, and figuring out what that is. And the hard part about figuring out values, if you haven't thought about it, is you often come up with values by thinking about what you don't like rather than what you do like. It's easier to think about things that, that, you know, somebody pisses you off right. and, and so you right. go, what is it about them that pissed me off? The opposite of that is what you value typically, right? If <laughs> right. You, yeah, sure. What, what pissed me off about that interaction? I must like the opposite of that and therefore find the positive side of it, which is the value that you, that you hold. And uh, I think really important to nail that down because it, it sounds wishy-washy, but ultimately any partnership that you have, whether it's your marriage or your business partner or whomever, if you, if you have a fundamental disconnect on what you believe in and what you want to, how you want to conduct yourself, you're going to get into a lot of arguments and uh, save yourself the pain. Yeah. And if you don't really articulate it and think of it proactively, you just end up somewhere. It may not be the place you want to be, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scott, thanks. Thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, you spending time with us today and continued success. Okay. Thanks, Eric. It's awesome. And that was Scott Butler, CEO of High Street Ventures, Inc. I wanted to briefly revisit just a, a point from that interview. It, it was, uh, it was, that one was really a lot of fun for me. Uh, Scott was one of my very first students when I got into academia some 20 years ago. So, so that was pretty special to me. And one of the things that I, I love about Scott's story is, uh, you know, around the idea of business models. I am passionate about business models. I love looking at companies and, and figuring out their business models and, and how they've gotten to where they are. And, you can see how High Street's business model evolved to really fit the opportunity. And, and Scott said that over and over again. But, but you can also see 
that that was guided by his experience, his experience in his family, his experience in school, and his experience at work. And, you know, he was able to take that learning and evolve it and apply it and learn and evolve and apply. And I think that pattern is, you know, what sets uh, Scott and many very successful entrepreneurs apart is that they're they're always looking for, you know, a great idea and how they can apply that in their situation, evolve it and make it great for them. So, you know, work for great companies, take from them, learn from them, work with great people, take from them, learn from them and, you know, start great businesses. And I think uh, all those things go hand in hand. So uh, well done, Scott. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.